Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I'm your host, Duncan McPherson, and on this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, highly effective fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves, personally and professionally. And on today's podcast, I had a great conversation with Tyson Ray from Form Wealth in Wisconsin. Uh, he is the embodiment of what it means to be the advisor of the future. In this episode, we covered a lot of ground, including how to achieve professional contrast and how to activate future pacing as a goals-based planner with your clients, but also looking down the road at the evolution of this industry. If you like this podcast, please like and share and tell your colleagues. And of course, we would love to hear any feedback. Thanks for listening. Let's jump right in. This is Duncan McPherson with Pareto Systems. Thanks for listening in on the Always On podcast. I'm very, very excited uh, for many reasons. Joined by Tyson Ray in Wisconsin. Uh, in my view, Tyson, the embodiment of the advisor of the future for so many reasons. And we'll get into a little bit of your uh, history and backstory. But uh, right up front, one word comes to mind when I think of Tyson Ray, and that is balance. Oh boy. Uh, in my view, you're a very balanced person. You're always working on yourself personally and professionally. Mm, that's true. The business serves your life, not the other way around. You're not being run by the business. You are running the business. Uh, you have immense appreciation for everything that's happened in your life, but also uh, immense aspiration for who you want to become. Uh, so first of all, right up front, thank you very much. We've known each other for a long time. I've been looking forward to this and, um, let's just talk about the concept of balance. If I can just sort of put you on the spot there. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that, you know, if I had it behind my head, it'd be always off. And, uh, if I feel like as, um, I think I got here because early on I took a perspective that I don't know everything. So therefore I didn't put stress on myself that I had to be right all the time. And um, yeah, I think it was clients that taught me early on uh, what the job was really all about and what, the, what I controlled and what I didn't control. And I think early on I figured out, or when I figured out my job really isn't to help people make money. Uh, investing in, in money and wealth creation just kind of happens over time, kind of like, you know, I don't make corn grow, I just make sure it gets planted type of thought process. But my value add became about trying to make life better. And that took on a whole different, more a different meaning and purpose. And then you actually had to be a student teacher in the sense that you actually have to, and I try to live out those things I actually tell others to do, or get to pull from my own experiences sometimes that I've learned from other clients to share with people that uh, I haven't retired yet, or I haven't done some of these things yet, but I've gained wisdom through asking questions and gaining other experiences that has allowed me to both have balance for myself and uh, make a bigger difference in my practice and the lives of other people. Well, that's profound out of the gate. And I, I, you know, I think about the conversations that you and I have had over the course of the last probably what, 15 years on a wide range of topics. And an, an extension of balance is the fixation on purpose and process. So the purpose is the why, the process is the how. Your why has been galvanized, and I want to hear about that. 
but you don't ever lose sight of the client's why, why financial independence is important to them. And then, of course, the process is how you get them there and how you get yourself and your team to the goals that you've set, which leads me right to the branding of your practice. If you could just talk a little bit about how you landed on that. Well, yeah. So the, the, the practice is called Form Wealth Advisors. Form actually came from the acronym of the book I read of yours you know, years ago. A uh, little twist on it. You know, we use uh, the F standing for family and and friends, the O, obviously, for occupation, the R for recreation and the hobbies that one has. And the M we used for mission because we put the wealth or the money component on the back end of the phrase. And what we try and say is we want to try to understand the form your life is taking in order to understand how to manage your wealth. Uh, when we started growing the firm and adding other advisors, we then used to be form wealth. We added form wealth advisors because at, once we started realizing we had these processes and we could teach these processes to other advisors, we added the advisors part out of the firm. And then we realized that that was missing uh, uh, the major component, which is really what is our ultimate vision or goal. And so the brand is Form Wealth Advisors, um, a better life. And it's the better life is the why behind all that we're doing. Uh, you know what? I forgot about the mission distinction. That is yeah. quite profound. I know some other financial professionals, their M is message. This is our message. Yep. But yep. nevertheless, it's all a means to an end to what those yep. aspirations are. But I think mission is quite strong. Yeah. What I try and what I tell clients, what makes me, I get out of bed in the morning because I get so excited about if over the course of your lifetime, I can help you accomplish everything you wanted to do, but I can help get you to define that M, that mission for you. And that means you have extra that you can do giving while you're living, whether it's to loved ones or to make your impact or difference in this world, whatever you get led to that becoming and helping you realize what extra is for you. That's, that's the beginning of what success looks like for me in a practice. 20 plus years. Did you have to make the shift away from transacting and talking about products, pricing and performance? Or were you always fueled by stewardship? No, I, I think like all of us were recovering brokers, uh, salesmen. Uh, I, like most people, I think, started out thinking my job was to find the better product or the better mousetrap uh, using a phrase you've, you've pulled. Uh, then I thought, no, I'll have a better combination of mousetraps and have the better portfolio. Uh, or no, I'll end up having the better plan. Uh, and when I finally realized, no, it's about having a consistent experience and it's becoming these sets of pro a set of processes that really just became duplicatable and teachable, we started grasping uh, a value add. But my whole purpose of, of that uh, journey really started by being mentored. And uh, I really viewed my beginning of my career when I got into a partnership and I was in my early 20s and he was in his late 60s. Um, kind of as the apprenticeship that they've done over you know millennia, and yet somehow we've gotten away from that. But one day out of the blue, he says, "Come on, we're gonna we're we're going we're going out we're gonna go out the door." He said, "Come on, let's go out." And I grabbed my jacket. We're walk walking out. We walk past his car. I'm like, "Where are we going?" He's like, "We're going for a little bit of a walk, walk a block or two. <clears throat> and I said, "Where are we going?" And he didn't answer me. And he uh, he comes to me and he says, "Hey, come on, I'm gonna show you what success is." And I said, okay. So I grabbed my jacket. We walk out the office. We don't get into his car. We walk down a block or so. And I kind of am asking him like, okay, you know, what, what is, what, 
what is this? Like, I'm, what is success? And uh, he didn't answer me until he stopped at the church and turned to left. And we went into this church and I saw the funeral of a client's name that I recognized. I didn't know the client. I was so new. And I kind of caught him as we're walking in. I'm like, um, I'm going to a funeral. I don't, I don't know the person. He's like, I know, but I'm going to teach you what success is. And I sat in this funeral and he looked at me and said, there'll be a, there, I'm going to quiz you when we're done. So pay attention to what you, what you hear. And okay. And I, we walked out of there and, and he looked at me and he's like, well, what'd you learn? And I'm like, well, you know, his name's Bob and he had this, his wife, the widow, she was kind of upset. She didn't talk. He had the three kids. They all spoke. His best friend, Bill got up and spoke talked about the vacation that they took and the place they had up north. They talked about how, you know, he was able to retire at 55 and, and be able to live off of these assets that, that he had had or the incomes and the colleges he paid for and all these things. And uh, uh, scratch that, he actually talked about, yeah, the colleges that he was able to put, the kids were thankful for the colleges they were put through, the, the fact that they were able to retire and go up to this lake house. Bottom line is I just kind of repeated this gentleman's life that I didn't know, but kind of had a good understanding from. And then Dick looked at me and said, did they talk about the portfolio? I said, no. Did they talk about the financial plan I did? No. Did they talk about the estate plan I did? I said, no. And he said, now you understand what success looks like because we made that life better for the work, the work that we did. And I come to my client funerals to basically judge for myself how I did my job. What, what my definition of success is I can attend a client's funeral and have no regret with the advice I gave them and what they did with what was theirs to do with. It's learning what that is. And what I had to learn as an advisor and what the process helps me do that we've created is I think too many salesmen or brokers are hiding under different titles and they, they haven't realized that it, they, they, they want to change things. They like to change things. So they change the portfolio. And what I realized was, is changing the portfolio or changing your application of what you put clients' money in is, is a means to an end. I was told once that touching people's portfolios is like touching a bar of soap. The more you play with it, the smaller it gets. Different from what I try and change is the way I ask the questions, that the clients can come in and answer a question that I can ask them to try and understand the form their life is taking and how what's always changing, what's always exciting is to find out what's happened since the last time I talked to them and what's changed and what they want to do in the next six, 12 months, six years. What's the new family member that's come into the family or who do we lose and what does that mean and what are we trying to do? And so our processes are all around trying to identify the, and dig deeper into these relationships so much so when I'm going to these funerals, I am actually part of that family. I'm actually connecting with kids I've probably already talked to. And I'm able to, to give that widow a hug and comfort and remind them that they're not alone, that we, we've, we were still here going forward. And then more importantly, hear about the life that I was able to impact because I was so focused on trying to help understand what is it they wanted out of their life and how can I help make that life better in a lot of ways, by just giving them permission to live the life they want to have as long as it's within the means of what they have. And we've developed a process for that to streamline all the other noise that derails us from focusing on them. Okay, so like many people for 25 years plus, I've been sort of echoing Stephen Covey's begin with the end in mind. Yep. And that right there is probably the best example I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. 
And I literally, I, mean, I literally had an experience. Uh, it was after Dick taught me this, my mentor. I, I was in, I think I was probably 25. It was before Dick retired. I, I, on the same day, and this is in the book I wrote, the same day I went to a client's baptism of a child being born and we already had gotten the social security number and we'd already opened up the college savings plan and we were all excited about that. And I was celebrating that life. And I literally walked across Main Street in the town I was in and went into a different church of a different denomination to attend a funeral of a different client. And I realized, you know, people write this, this, these books about, or I realized that, that my job is between is crossing main street. My job is the dash between life and death. And I get to try and have an impact in that. And it has nothing to do with the portfolio it has nothing to do with the product. It really doesn't have anything to do with the plan. It has to do with the process of monitoring and executing consistently upon things that we can learn from others to make sure those that come uh, behind uh, us can, can do the same thing. And that's, I glean from clients all the time. Tell me about your biggest mistakes. Tell me about what you wish you'd have done differently or better so that all these years I've been in front of thousands of clients to take all that wisdom and now help advise clients that are younger than them to not to what these lessons are and help teach other advisors how to ask these questions to get that wisdom out of them to help them live that better life. You know, so many people who are trying to make a sale, uh, they talk about the whole cradle to grave, right? Wallet share, capturing business, uh, all of that. I mean, that's fine. That's very practical it's capitalism but i think what you're saying here in my view anyway is just a gentle reminder about the significance of the shadow that we cast on people's lives and and the impact that we do have on people's lives uh very very profound and i know i know you well your view is you don't have to do this you get to do this portfolio management at your your technical ability uh, I will never trivialize that. It's just, it's it's a given that you've got the goods. Have you mastered the art and science of having a client understand that you know why financial independence is important to them? And do they, in turn, appreciate how you get them there? That's simpatico. That is a force multiplier when it comes to long-term loyalty, intergenerational, like all the dynastic realities, advocacy, very, very profound. Now, let's, let's just, I, I wanted to talk about this later, but you mentioned it. Why did you write the book, Your World Impact? What was the point of this? Because this is what, 10 years old now? Yeah, I've been bugged many times. I was supposed to refresh it, uh, which I probably should. The um, I'm too busy living it out. But the uh, yes, why did I write it? I was so passionate about, I am so passionate about trying to help financial advisors stop selling last week's winning lotto numbers for a fee, which is to stop selling past performance as their way of saying, here, I can do better than, and realize it's not the performance of the portfolio, but the performance of the client life that matters. And really the whole purpose of the was uh, the firm that I was brought up in uh, would bring me back on a quarterly basis to talk to you know advisors in their second, third, fourth year that basically had made it through and survived and were kind of humbled a little bit about by that experience and ready to basically hear like, okay, how do you build a practice? Like, what does that really look like? And um, 
I wrote the book because I was once at a conference giving them my presentation. I was sitting in the back waiting for my turn. And I, the, the gentleman up front of me is speaking and the, he was sitting at the table next to me when I got to go speak. And I looked over and there's a stack of books and I just reached over and grabbed one of his books and I'm listening to his presentation. I'm flipping through this book. I'm like, ah, that's his presentation. I'm like, well, I can do that. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the concept of the book is it's to encourage an advisor to just really understand what is what is success for you defined as? You know, what are you, are you trying to be the best portfolio person? You know, are you, do you, can you really add value consistently there? And more importantly, can your clients have a consistent experience there? Or are you making the mistake that every client is a new opportunity towards a perfect portfolio, which means every client has a different portfolio and a different experience. And so it's to define what is success for you because it's not portfolio management individualized for each client. So they all have a different experience because you're not having a consistent outcome. Uh, is success for you having the best uh, planning software or the technology? You know, what, what is it that, that you feel you add the greatest value to in making a difference? And, and what is success for you defined as personally? Is it a financial? Is it, is it a quality of life? Is it what you can do for your kids or your family? Is it what you can do around the world in the form of charities? But it's, it's landing on what, it, what is your, who are you and what is success what is the value you bring in the processes that you have and the consistency that when you bump into the client at the grocery store, you know exactly where they're at without having to look at any of your technology. And those are some things that processes can bring you. And what are, what are there's some recommendations in there about what some of those processes are. And then what's the value that clients are really looking for and how do you help them define what their success is in, in the process? And the whole purpose is, is I really think we can impact the world for the better that's why it's called Your World Impact. As financial advisors, when we stop getting focused on a sale, we stop defining success as more assets or a bigger practice uh, or some third party reward. Uh, it's it's when, I, when we can help clients live better lives in their terms, or especially in my own practice, when I can help a client achieve everything they ever wanted to achieve and what they have, and then help them start defining what is a mission, what is to do with extra that you have, whether it's to give it while you're living or to give it away to other people or to, or to create that legacy and, and watch them have to process what that even would look. And sometimes it's fun things. Don't think it has to, you know, I, it's as little as I had to convince a client once who worked till he was 72 as a doctor and he didn't want to take a trip. And I convinced him and his wife that they'll take this trip into Europe if they flew first class, because you'll be less tired, you'll relax, it'll be better. And it's just like, nope, this money's for later. And I keep saying, nope, later's now. And finally, I realized, you know what? I'm going to set aside and I'm sending you from your accounts $10,000 to upgrade your tickets. If you don't do it, don't do it, fine. But I'm going to put it in your bank account because I bet if I put the money in your bank account, take it out of your portfolio, you'll spend it. Well, guess what? They went on the trip. He actually called me before they went on the trip and he laughed at me because he said, ha, I didn't buy first class, I found out there's business class and I bought business class thinking he still saved some money. When I met with him next after that trip, he didn't talk about what they saw in Europe. He talked about the warm washcloth that he got to wipe his hands with for anybody that flew first class. He talked about the real silverware and the real food and the fact that he could lay down and sleep. And again, a reflection of what success is for me is about a month later, the handwritten note that I got from his daughter thanking me that I convinced his father, they never thought in a million years, their father who worked till he was 72 as a doctor had saved millions of dollars would ever be able to enjoy any of it. And unfortunately, two years later, cancer took his life. And while I was attending that funeral, 
that same daughter and I were able to embrace. And just, I was so humbled by being a part of, again, trying to make a better life. And to this day, I still get to try and help his wife continue to live out what she gets to do now. Uh, and that's just a different way of looking at things, but how to, it's, it's getting to the mission of helping them go above and beyond what they're used to. And it's, and it's almost, almost counterintuitive. And it's almost always giving them permission to spend their money, which is the exact opposite of the industry that says spend your money, which means you take money out of the account. Well, that's how I get paid. So no, 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 let's, let's not pay off the mortgage or let's not buy that second home with cash or whatever the goal is for the client. And my favorite line to clients is, is that I just want to remind you what I'm recommending here, paying off the house, buying a first class ticket, uh, upgrading the car because you can't, enjoying the fruit of what is your life's work. I don't get paid for. And quite frankly, nobody gets paid for. But it's the right thing to do. And that's why I'm recommending. So people listening to Tyson for the first time, I'm not sure if you're there yet, but I'll just mention I've known, known you for a long time. I don't know if I've ever said this to you directly, but I've often said to myself that you're one of those guys where the value of the conversation actually really kicks in after we hang up the phone. And I think that's going to, that's developing in this conversation here. Not just for me, I'm sure for anybody listening in. It's interesting. You mentioned that you give your clients permission. And I think that's one of the most interesting key performance indicators around the degree that a client buys into your process is you create a mentor-protege dynamic with your clients. You are, in essence, a de facto life coach for your clients, giving them permission because you've obviously helped them amplify the discipline of for savings, putting money to work, uh, and all of those dynamics. But then breaking that pattern later in life to say, enjoy this. Right. That, that's very powerful. I do want to come back to your book for a second because, you know, I've been a road warrior. I've been to so many conferences. I've spoken before or after so many other speakers and authors. I can tell pretty quickly. There's two authors in business development books. There's the author who says, I'm going to write a book because this is going to be the best business card to drive business on the back end. And then you get the other, you can tell the author who says, the exercise of me crystallizing and galvanizing my thoughts in a book, if I'm the only person who reads this book, it'll be worth it. And it's self-evident, right? Where you stand there. I'm gonna put you on the spot here. And I'm, I mean, I already know the answer, but I just want to let everybody hear you express this. What makes you different? I don't think I didn't think I'd come over. I didn't come from money. I mean, I had an eviction notice on my fridge when dad left mom with four kids and no child support. And I started work. I actually lied on a work application when I was 12 because you had to be 13 to bust the tables uh, down the road. And those two nights I could make a hundred dollars and that meant the world to me because all of a sudden there was, you know, I could, you know, in high school, I could have a shirt that had a horse on it and uh, yeah, or a pair of jeans that had the right label. And when I was 16, I realized I grew up in an area, what I would say is the, the, the haves and the have nots. There was, I'm in the Southern part of Wisconsin called Lake Geneva. It was founded by the mob in the twenties and there's, 
you know, billionaire mansions all over the place and uh, Ferraris would go up and down the neighborhood. We lived in this little, you know, area of these little rundown lake houses, right? That are all mansions now. But the bottom line is, is I had an appreciation early on of what, what money meant. And when I was 16, uh, I remember getting dropped off uh, by a gentleman who gave me a ride home in his Ferrari. And I just had to ask, I actually lied at the house I worked, or he dropped me off at because I was too embarrassed to have him drop me off at my house. But I asked him, like, what did you do? If you could tell me, if you could tell yourself when you were 16, what, 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 like, what did you do? He said, I would have started investing sooner. And so I went and tried to convince my mother to let me take my chubby, chubby chipmunk bank account and go and buy uh, a stock that had gone from 12 to seven. Uh, that I was tracking in the high school investment game that they give you f- fake money and they teach you the worst fundamentals possible to how to invest it and whoever makes the most money wins. But I was tracking that enough that, you know, I wanted to buy the stock. Mom said no. And the reason I'm here today, because like anything else, your parents tell you no, it's like, okay, no. So I dragged my mom in to see my stockbroker and uh, she convinced my mom it was okay for me to invest $100 a month into two mutual funds to which I paid the full load of the 5.75 A share, God bless her. <laughs> and, uh, you know, built that over time. And the second I turned 18, I bought 50 shares of IBM and 50 shares of Hewlett Packard. And I'd like to say I kept those forever. Of course, I didn't, right? You, they, you wrote them up, you sold them, you bought something else. But I, I, I made a lot of mistakes early on uh, with my own money, uh, finding out what margin was. I blew myself up uh, before I ever got into the business. And um, when I got into the business, I I started in a glass box. That I was 23 out of college. The I was told they, I would I was was shocked they let they hired me. And um, I remember six months in, my little salary fell off, and it, the the monthly my entire month's paycheck was just a little bit over 400 dollars. Before I had gotten started in the, in the business, I had made a promise to God that I would tithe. Because it's like, hey, God, if you give me this job and it's successful, I'm all in on this 10%. Like, you, you care. You want to get 10%? Fine, because I'll, I'll keep 90. And you know what? I, Lord, I'm going to take 10%. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to take another 10%. I'm going to invest it back in my business. So I'm going to invest in what we're going to do together. So anyway, fast forward. I get this $400 paycheck in November. And um, I wrote a, I, I remember going, okay. So I wrote a, a $4 check to the church. By this time, I was probably $10,000 into debt in my in, in trying to invest in my business. I'm probably the only person that in hindsight got a CFP and realized I went some $20,000 in credit. Like if I was going to fail in the business, like it was going to be the biggest failure possible. <laughs> I reached a point that's like, you know what? It's going to be bankruptcy. I'm going to have to go to court. I'm going to lose my licenses because that's how all in I am because I'm investing in me because when I went to go ask for help, my branch manager said, if you want to do it, use your own money. And so... I was all in. I was working half days. I never worked so hard. I had my my best friend at the time, who actually now works for me, uh, made fun of me because he was still finishing a degree and he figured out he was making more money with his $2 an hour uh, waiter wage before tips than I made at my broker job. Um, moved back home. That was in Pensacola, Florida, where I went to college. I moved back home in with my grandmother because it's much cheaper to live with grandma and started over effectively. And in the process, got into this partnership. And so, you know, it was that starting over is what I called it. It's like, wait, I can take all this wisdom of this last year of just absolutely suffering 
16 seminars in six months and at all at the same bagel place that was new. And I convinced the guy that was at the bagel place that, Hey, I'm going to bring, I'm going to advertise and bring people into your place. You're going to provide food for free. And for six months, I ate the leftover food because it was going to throw it out. No, eating uh, canned apple, it was apple juice, baked beans, and ham don't go well together. Cheap. Bottom line is, is that when I got the opportunity to partner up with Dick Honeyager, it came because one day I walked into his office and I'm like, hey, you know, Mr. Honeyager, you're 68. You've been doing this for 40 years. You're the branch manager. I'm a kid. I'm 25, 26, trying to figure out life. Let me see your portfolio. And he was kind of like, what? And I'm like, let me, yeah, let me see your, let me see your accounts. He's like, why? And I'm like, well, if you're not going to show me your accounts, I'm going to, I might as well quit. If I can't get you to reveal what you have for a net worth, how in the world am I going to do it for somebody that's outside of here? And so he begrudgingly went and printed one of his statements and handed it to me. And I'm looking at this multi-million dollar portfolio. This is 1999. And he had picked all of the growth stocks that you would have wanted for that 20 year era. And he sat back with the biggest grin on his face, kind of waiting for me just to affirm this mass amount of wealth. And I looked at him and said, hey, I see this as in a joint account. Do you know if, do you know how much you're going to pay in taxes if you don't have this in a trust? And one of my gifts that makes me different is I tend to see problems other people don't see. And I tend to have been, I tend, I really, in that time where I was just d- struggling, I sought to be the expert I thought I needed to be to be the young kid that could step in a room and compete against peers that were old enough to be my parents. And the only way to do that was to just educate yourself. But you needed to educate yourself the same way I've been trying to spend the last decade educating my mom on why I should be investing. It's not to educate her that I'm the smart person, so I'm smarter than you. It's to educate her on the why it makes a difference for her that I can do what I can do. And so it's to learn to take, one of the things that makes me different is I can take in complicated information and regurgitate it back out at the different levels the client needs to hear it for them to understand it to the level they need to understand it to make a decision. So anyway, fast forward, uh, my whole career is here because I asked Dick, let me give you, I said to Dick, give me access to your accounts. I'll run a financial plan. I'll show you tomorrow what you're going to pay in estate taxes. And the next day I showed him circled with a big red pen and pay these millions of dollars in estate taxes. And I didn't know about a year before I showed up in that office, he cut a million dollar check back in 1999 to the federal government out of one of his clients' accounts. And he, he couldn't fathom that that was going to the government in the form of estate taxes. And so I worked and did the full-fledged estate plan for Dick and then went back and said, hey, why don't we create a process that I can go with every one of your clients and take them through a planning process to identify what their estate planning needs were. And that then launched the career that I have now. And uh, he retired four years later and I took over the whole practice. And it's been, it's been really a privilege because where I think the other thing that makes me different is most 20-something start a practice and start practice, you know, the practice, the industry is your peers. And so your industry is you have a second, third, fourth job, you're 40, 50, 60 years old, and you go find clients your age because that's who you know. And my ability to buy a practice that was 40 years old and the, the vast majority of my clients were Dick, Mr. Honey at years age. So they were in their 60s and 70s. I've been doing retirement distribution planning my whole life. And to glean from these people that are retired, what they wish they would have done differently when they were working has allowed me to go back to people that are working and add wisdom that was beyond my years, experience that you can't pick up in books and knowledge. And then at the same time, 
go get the designated. I'm a student teacher by my nature. I can't help myself. And and I remember when I was, you know, I was managing probably $150 million of assets and thought I was the king of the world. I was a million dollar producer. And in 2007, went and got my CFP. And I remember my first, this was the back when you had a classroom and you sat in the classroom before this virtual stuff. And I sat in the first classroom on retirement planning. The first week, it was all retirement planning, retirement session. And I went in there with the attitude of what are they going to teach me about retirement planning? And by noon of that first day, I was so disgusted. I could not believe they let me practice for what I didn't know, I didn't know. Because you can go past a Series 7, like you can go get a driver's license. It doesn't mean you're any good at driving or that you even should be. And yet I was responsible for all this money in these people's, people's lives. And so I took that so seriously to get that designation and continue to be a student teacher of that. And actually for, with COVID, I used COVID as my excuse to go finally accomplish something I'd been wanting to do for a decade, which I went and applied through the University of Yale's online program and got this, the education to go past the SEMA. And there again, it's like, you know, now I'm managing, I don't know, 700 million roughly of assets and the same thing. I'm like, I am shocked. They let me practice. And ironically, the code of ethics with the, with the CFP and the code of ethics for SEMA, when you, so the code of ethics for financial planning and really the code of ethics for portfolio management are all having a process that's repeatable. It's consistently applying principles of uh, stewardship and planning that the CFP teaches. And the SEMA is all about, hey, no one can predict the future. And so based on that, what are the tools and research and things you are using to consistently apply to a portfolio to identify risk and returns? And more importantly, the process we really have been, been working on since the beginning is identifying what shouldn't be invested and what should be set aside for what the client's going to need in the next 12 to 24 months. But yeah, what makes me different is, is that I've become more successful the more I realize I don't know what I don't know and be open to new things and to explore new things and to take on new technologies and new ways of doing things. And yet bringing them into a repeatable process to make the difference we're trying to make for our client. You covered so much ground. Well, I'm sorry. In that response. Something I didn't know about you is you were a contrarian at the age of 16. That's interesting. Yeah, But let me tell you what I heard in all that from the standpoint of maybe translating some of that into somebody else deploying some of these techniques. I've always known you've had immense humility. I don't know why I wrote this down. Mark Twain had a quote. He said, it's easier to trick someone than to convince them they've been tricked. And to me, that's a statement on ego. And I mean, ego in, in the purest forms just means you believe in yourself, you have confidence. Arrogance, that's different. That's where you have a, a sense of superiority over somebody else. And I appreciate you being open about your origins because I love and I respect first-generation self-made affluence. It's earned, it's not found. And, you know, I, I you know, we've talked about this in various forms in the past, but what happens to us makes us, right? It doesn't define us, but it contributes to who we become. And that's profound in this space. You, but you also, I, I, I bring it back to balance. You've got a bedside manner and an X factor that is very difficult to teach 
I mean, the clay was soft with Dick. He he exposed you to some things that shaped you in that X factor. But again, you're not mailing it in. Your your technical ability continues to be refined. Now, here's what's fascinating. It's funny. I got a text today from a friend. His name is Randy Schwantz. He wrote a book called uh, The Wedge. And his, his mantra is, uh, for you to get hired, someone's got to get fired. But they need to come to their own conclusions. It's You're not going to convince them that they have to leave their current financial advisor. They need to make that decision based on the professional contrast you create. And, and, and an interesting quote, John Locke said, the, the goal is not to prove, put someone at fault, it's to put them in possession of the truth. So you're, you're, what I heard in your explanation there is that planning, and, and I think you said seeing problems that a lot of people, uh, other people don't see, like unmet needs that exist that go unnoticed, and being able to see around corners, for lack of a better description, th- is that innate or is that learned? Yeah, the um, what's interesting is... Um, what is interesting is I, it was a series of commercials that a financial firm ran years ago. The commercial was the car pulls up, two kids get in the back, two gentlemen are up front. The guy sitting on the passenger side looks back and, and starts communicating to one of the kids, hey, you know, you need to make sure you get your homework done tonight. I'm not a fan of this kid. They uh, continue to keep your, your grades up, uh, you know, and the daughter looks or the, the, the girl that was, the girl that was being spoken to looked at her friend and she's like, who's that? Is that your dad? And and she's like, no, that's my dad's broker. And the takeaway from that was there was a bunch of them that were along those lines and attending weddings. And, uh, and so bottom line, what I picked up on, I guess the better way I I had, I, I couldn't put this into words until this, before this podcast happened, but I had an experience about a week ago where I was sitting down with a very fluent client. They had gotten referred to us. I'm going through their plan. Plan's perfect. I'm going through their investment account and the portfolio. It looks the same. They asked the allocation where it's supposed to be. Everything's fine. And I'm asking him questions and I'm kind of coming to the conclusion like, yep, you guys are fine. And yet the feedback I'm getting from their body language is, is they were very much more engaged in the conversation and they had come to me. And so I kind of said, you know, um, your other advisor here, your other advisor, Kurt, has he done all this? And she's, they're like, yeah, they, we've done all this. And I said, okay. And I said, um, but you, you're still interested in coming here. And they're like, yeah. And I said, well, can you tell me why? What's why? If he's done all this and the portfolio is fine, why do you want to come here? And they looked at each other for a second. They looked back at me and they said, because you care. But I said, okay, tell me what you mean by that. And she's like, well, we told him that one of our dreams is to build this million dollar house. And he wanted to know, okay, how much are we going to sell the other house for? And what's the mortgage? And that's all the facts, right? And I had gotten all that. But he never bothered to ask us, well, what's the house going to look like? And how many bedrooms is it? You know, is it two story or one story? How many garage spaces are we going to have, right? Uh, he also probably wouldn't, which is a standard in our process when the house is built and they've moved in, that we send them a monogram doormat with their you know, their initial on it. And it's just a huge wow. It's permanent. And it's our stamp of, hey, we thank you for letting us help uh, build that house. And what I found is, is what makes me different at the end of the day is I actually care about the client more than I care about their money. 
I care about their the client and what they what they're going to say about the life they got to live more than I care about my commissions or what I, I care about advocating their best life, which drives us to give them permission to go do it or remind them they said they wanted to do it. And when I got my focus off myself and, and got my focus onto the hierarchy, right? Maslow's hierarchy, self-acquisition of just trying to, wow, I can really impact the lives of other people and then build a process to teach others how to do the same and ask these questions and, and, and dig a little deeper than the, than the facts to get to the feelings behind wealth. Uh, that's what makes us different. Well, it brings us full circle to the concept of balance and part of your branding with the practice with form. I've always said that form, deploying form is a process. It, it goes beyond just caring about the client. It shows them that you care about what they care about. I mean, it's palpable. They can feel it. They can, you know, they know it. And, you know, coming back to your distinction on the M and form being mission, the client was happy with the message that that previous advisor created, just not, not locked in and connected to the messenger. There was something missing. There was a gap. And obviously somebody had been an advocate for you and an advocate for that prospective client that they said, you're ready for Tyson. You're, you're at that point, which is powerful, right? I want to start to pivot a little bit. You're one of the first advisors to understand what a financial professional really manages. Yes, you manage money. Yes, you manage risk. You've got all the technical ability and the credentials. You take it seriously. You're a serious student. But you also manage a business that creates a client experience. You also manage people and their expectations and their ability to internalize and socialize your value. You know, was it, again, I'm assuming it was early 2005, six, seven, where you realized that you needed to be process driven across the board in all the things you manage? Yeah, the, the, yeah, I did the Pareto coaching back in 2005 that really helped us put some of that together. Uh, What that allowed me to do process does a couple things. One, it, it, it becomes a great teacher and it becomes Pro- the process gets to manage the firm, so I don't have to micromanage the firm. The process allowed consistency, especially now that we're having more than one location, that there's some experiences that are the same. A silly example of that is Dick Honeyager, my mentor, uh, always, when he started the business in his basement, his wife would bring him two Tootsie Rolls after lunch because the town that, that they started the business in was in the town that Tootsie Rolls were made. So logically, that's a tie-in, right? And uh, when there was a client meeting, there was coffee with the Tootsie Rolls. And by the time I showed up at the reception desk, there was always this bowl of Tootsie Rolls. And when I finally bought out the rest of the practice, Dick wasn't so worried about the terms of the contract. He was worried and he made, I, I had to promise there will always be a bowl of Tootsie Rolls at the reception desk. And there is. Uh, the process goes beyond that experience. There's always the same candle burning in, in the room where we meet with clients uh, because scent is a very powerful reminder that I want their senses to be tied into and their sweets to tie into this whole experience of talking about their life. But beyond that, we've created process around really two things the, 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 that we wanted to brand to give clients understanding. 
Uh, the, the planning part is what we call a life plan. Mm-hmm. And it's different from financial planning. Financial planning is this 300-page document you can print, it, per, print and project the future. And it's going to tell you it's going to be warm in you know, the summer and cold in the winter. It's going to tell you at these rates of return, the client will grow at these rates. In the specifics, it'll say, okay, you're going to have a travel budget of X number of dollars. Our life plan process, I realized that that's a great beginning tool or that can give you some general compass. But what I want to know, Mr. and Mrs. Client, not is how many you know cars you're going to buy in what rhythm. I want to know when the next car you're going to buy is going to be and how much that specifically is going to cost. Because early in my days of my career, I got to experience the, the, the tech bubble burst in a 9-11 crisis. And I got to watch about $150 million in about six months go to about $75 million, cut in half. And watch the reaction to clients that left money in investments that should never have been in investments. And what clients do psychologically when their portfolios go down is they quantify the loss as a tangible item they would have bought. And the mistake is when it actually is an item they should have bought. When the farmer came to me, when Don came to me, I'll never forget this. I was in my still 26, maybe. Don came to me and let me know he just lost his combine in the market. The investments he had was that profit was going to buy the next combine. And now he had to go into debt and he didn't want to. All those dollars came back. But the lesson was the life plan is to identify what is the next six to 12 months look like? And are we buying the car? And when is it? And how much? Right down to it's not the travel budget. It is where are you going? Well, planning is reacting to critical life events, but also future pacing, looking down the road, trajectory, risk management, right? External dependencies, all of that. But again, balance, art and science, managing the portfolio, managing the client experience, managing the emotions and expectations of the client. Uh, Now, here's what's interesting. Because you're process driven across the board, all of that is now an intellectual property Mm -hmm. that you can put in the hands of somebody else. Yep. So you're, you've already crossed the Rubicon from a business to client, a B to C organic growth enterprise, you professionalize and standardize to such an extent that you're now in a B2B, business-to-business growth dynamic, scalable, franchise-ready growth. So you have, if I remember correctly, and, and there's one thing I want to touch on in a second, but I want to jump. You've already acquired businesses, correct? And to that end, the, the you know franchise-ready We've taken the planning process and the questions we ask in, the, in this ongoing life plan and created a piece of technology that allows the web, to, allows the right. advisor to send it to the client, allows the client to respond back, and then you can pick that conversation back up with the client. But it's a way to, uh, again, be able to fill this out and obtain this information in a technology-like format. Regarding uh, acquiring practices, well, I, requ- I acquired Dick's practice originally. Um, a few years later in the 2007, eight and nine markets, uh, again, where you experienced a significant pullback, I had some uh, advisors that weren't enjoying uh, their, the, how their portfolios were, were, were holding up the, and quite frankly, the, how things were changing in the industry. Uh, so I had uh, bought out uh, three other practices. So that made four uh, over the period of probably those five or six years in there. Uh, from when I bought out Dick's practice to the other ones. I had a fifth practice I tried to acquire and it didn't go well because there wasn't enough due diligence on my part to identify the values weren't aligned. 
and the best interest of the client wasn't the main goal. Uh, and so that had a falling out. And uh, I, it was so painful for me, uh, I think, because I am such an optimist and I really felt bad for the clients when I realized how bad things were being managed, that I just decided to stay internal and grow my own firm. And then uh, a year ago, I had another advisor who reached out to me and asked me to acquire uh, a practice that they had. And uh, again, realized how equipped we were to step in and help the uh, it was a father-daughter team, help the father uh, monetize his life work, but not hang that significant amount of wealth or money around his daughter's neck. Uh, and yet our ability and our, our uh, profitability allowed us to come in and really allow him to monetize it, allow the daughter to come on a track that's going to let her make more than she would have made had she been servicing the debt to dad. And yet bringing our processes around what she was doing to help her make a greater impact in the client's lives and allow us to have a greater influence in the client's wealth to live that life and realize the upside of that. And so it's between the life plan that we created and then the way we manage money, the process for that is called TRVEST, mm -hmm. which stands for total relationship investing. It's the idea that you need to understand the total of the client relationship and what the needs are. The plan comes first to drive the portfolio, but what drives the portfolio is its own process uh, of different pieces of research and how they're applied that drives changes to the portfolio. And then most importantly, uh, a very simple phenomenon called uh, don't sell when the market's down. Uh, and so by having the right amount of cash set aside, because we plan what the needs are uh, to the best of our abilities of our clients telling us, the only time we're raising cash for clients is not this dollar cost ravaging. That's the easy way to do it, right? Just tell the fund company, tell the firm to just automatically sell that thousand dollars a month because it doesn't cost, doesn't take any work. Uh, and yet uh, in, the, in this COVID market where you lost 30% in 30 days, you were selling all the way down and all the way up for that. That's the worst way to take money out of a portfolio. What we seem to seek to do is when clients get into retirement, if we know what your dollar amount need is from your portfolio, we try and set that aside uh, 12 to 24 months in advance. And the times that we're looking to do that is when the markets are at their all-time high. And I have no idea if they're going to go higher. I'm willing to do that. I always can tell you if the market's not at its all-time high. And if we're not at an all-time high, that's why we have this cash reserve built up. So we always have about six to 24 months of cash for a client that buys us time. And so when the markets got shellacked uh, a year ago because of COVID, uh, literally no one's panicking in our practice. Clients aren't calling off the hook upset because they know the car, the monthly income, the education for, the, for their kids, it's all been sanctified in cash. Yes, doesn't earn anything. Uh, oh, by the way, we don't charge a fee on the cash. Uh, but we have this process to our investments to be monitoring what shouldn't be invested based on what the client told us they needed and monitoring is the market at the all time high or is it not? And creating consistency through our portfolios. And so when we have crises in these markets, I don't have to have clients lives experience a crisis. And That's overreact and underreact and, and all yeah. of that. I, I, tell I think you, a lot I, of advisors panic. Because yeah. they have too much money invested in things that are paying them, but not what the client should be having. Well, there's part of that just uh, philosophical alignment, right? And I love the study in contrast from the earlier acquisition that was under and what it revealed, and then 
the example with the father-daughter dynamic. And, you know, part of our approach is uh, framed in PSP, the alignment of interest is philosophical, strategic, and practical. So, so the alignment of interest in a B2B transaction, philosophical, strategic, and practical. Philosophical, you see the world the same way. And obviously the dad felt, okay, I'm doing my daughter a disservice to burden her with the complete responsibility. I'm probably doing my clients a disservice if I don't elevate their experience by aligning with someone like Tyson. Okay. So there's the philosophical, the strategic is bottom line is how do my clients benefit? Practical is how do I monetize? It wasn't just an acquisition. The daughter got to draft in Mm -hmm. behind your process and not be left to her own devices as dad rode off into the sunset which is that mentor-protege dynamic, which is very, very powerful. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting to hear. Because you're process-driven, and because of what the last 18 months of 2020 and 2021 have revealed, yes, there are advisors who are thinking, okay, maybe I need to get out. Maybe I need to hook my wagon up to somebody who has really cracked the code. But there's this interesting thing that started to emerge the definition of getting out has changed. There are some advisors who have said, uh, I want to get out of the wealth management business in all the areas that are commoditized. Mm -hmm. I want to stay in the areas that are proprietary and I want to go deeper into those areas. So to give that some context, and because you are process driven, you've got this as as an option people can look into. Let's just say I'm a financial advisor. I've been doing this for 25 years. I've got 400 clients, got $110 million under management. And I am, I've still got five or 10 years left, but I want to get out of the minutia, right? I want to stop transacting. I want to stop trading time for money. And I'm really mindful of plateau avoidance. So of all the things I manage, I also manage time. That advisor has to look at how they transact in a week. If they work 45 hours in a week, they probably spend 15 hours a week managing money, 15 hours a week managing their business, 15 hours a week managing their clients. What if they got out of the asset management business, outsourced the technical aspects of managing money and outsourced it to you and form wealth, and then took your process for practice management and relationship management, which is a personalized hybrid of the Pareto system, but you've, you've built it out your own way. That's a two for one. You're providing liberation and order. So you're elevating the client because you haven't cobbled it together with the, you know, holdings, uh, households mentality. You are process model platform driven. That advisor outsources that to you because you have scale and you've cracked the code. And then you show them how to drive their enterprise value, how to drive their client experience, and ultimately how to grow through advocacy and total client engagement. Well, That's the beauty of being process-driven. You've got that model. And, and, and I would add that that advisor... <clears throat> who's been in the business for 25 years and is in his mid to late 50s, industry-wide most likely has an assistant 
or an associate on the, you know, uh, somebody who's helping him with the day to day, who's probably the same age and probably been working just as long, which neither of them want to necessarily learn something new. And what they, what, what happened in the father daughter scenario or in the scenario you're talking about here with this advisor, who's been around for 25 years, they become so successful. Their success is becoming a stranglehold on their quality of life. And what they need to start leveraging is process and a team. And what a process does is it becomes a teacher because without a process, you, the advisor in this situation has to teach the young individual or the new team member how to do things. And they probably have burned through enough of them over their years that they don't want to go through that torture. They just want to stay where they're at. And what we bring to the table, a process becomes a teacher because it's a series of steps and it's using technology to help create uh, experiences for clients and then identify the, you can, the unique ability of the advisor, which is often the knowledge of the relationship and almost always the trust that this client has placed in this advisor and allowing that to flourish at a deeper level while we bring not only the process, but the ability to bring on and teach other team members and build that next, build that bench that needs to dive deeper into that family of that client. Because I think the, 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 the mistake a lot of these advisors are making as they have, as they look out over the next five to 10 years of their practice is if they don't house any relationship with the beneficiaries, they're not going to have a practice to sell, mm-hmm. or it's going to have a big discount baked into it. Because if you have just the senior generation without the, without the beneficiaries or the ben- even the beneficiaries names, information, the ability to contact them, the ability to offer beneficial services to beneficiaries, if you're not if you're not thinking in those terms, you're you're the value of your practice is diminishing. Mm-hmm. And the whole design of the process that we bring on the table is to be holistic in that regard. It becomes a training tool that makes it very easy for us to bring on the other staff that they need to basically take their business to another level. And instead of losing value in the next five or 10 years, multiplying value in the next five or 10 years. I agree with that. The only little tweak I would apply to that is it's more about adopting than teaching or being taught. They're adopting a process. So, you know, you, you read Toffler's book about future shock. It's not just learning, it's unlearning, unlearning something where there's been a crescendo, a cresting where it's now, it's not relevant anymore. There is a better way. Yeah. I have that conversation. I'm, I apologize when I was saying teaching, it's teaching the new employee, how the, what the process is, it's the senior advisor that definitely has to. And in fact, the, the most recent acquisition that we did where we were bringing somebody underneath to draft us, I specifically said, I am only bringing you on to deepen the relationships you have with your clients. I am yeah. not bringing you on to implement your portfolio strategy or your planning strategy because we are going to use and adopt ours. Right. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying it's what the entire team is consistently using and as a standard that all clients can experience. And as we walk them through it and let them adopt it. And again, there's, they mm-hmm. need to say some things the way that feels comfortable for them, but creating the consistent outcome that we're looking for is allowing them to go gather uh, not only a better opportunity to make a difference in the client's lives, but also go and grabbing the rest of these assets that I don't trust another advisor to oversee that are being mismanaged or misaligned with what the overall goal is. Okay. So let me, let me punctuate that for everybody listening in. Okay. So if you are the advisor we described and you are focused on plateau avoidance, you are focused on 
making sure that the next five to 10 years is the most productive, fulfilling of your career, then I would ask you to have a conversation with Tyson, who could potentially either acquire your business and elevate the client experience and secure your legacy, or you could draft in behind his process, or you could outsource asset management to Tyson and give yourself the gift of time, right? Putting more sand in the hourglass, so to speak, and allowing you to invest that time into your business, into your clients, and into your personal life, right? Who knows? Maybe you'll, I mean, I have many advisors who are looking at the future saying, I'm going to have 52 three-day weekends a year. I'm taking every Friday off, and I'm going to be so incredibly rejuvenated to work on my business and work on my client relationships. I'll just outsource everything else to Tyson. I want to finish with a word that you said that really got my attention in a previous conversation. I'm not even sure if you know that it really resonated with me. I want to add to what you just said, then we can go back to what you want to get. So I talked to just yesterday an advisor that kind of fits your description. And what he told me he was looking for was he was looking for some way to try and have fun again in the business. Mm. That the burden of doing the right thing was the, the compliance and the paperwork and the process that he needed to implement was just overwhelming to him right. that, that to have someone else help give, give him that incentive and, and be able to go join a staff and a team that can help motivate him to become the best version of himself because he is he basically said, I've done everything I can do on my own, but I don't know how to build mm-hmm. a team. And I don't know even where to start with the process, mm-hmm. but if I can capitalize on yours, that built excitement in him. And it's, it's, okay. it's realizing he's coming to the end of his success, but the opportunity to impact his client never ends. Maybe think of that when you were saying yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's it's perfect. All right, so one more. Uh, you, you used a word, and I don't even remember entirely the full context, but it really spoke to your mindset. And again, hung up the phone with you, and I thought, wow. You talked, uh, uh, refresh my memory, you talked about the fact, I think, about uh, a client who was previously mistreated. That was the word you used by their now or soon to be former financial advisor. Do you remember that conversation and, and you using that word mistreated? Yeah, the, uh, it, it happens unfortunately way too often. Well, the it usually falls in the widow scenario where you have right. the the couple where you have this you know the generation especially that that, that there's one spouse uh, that was kind of running the finances and this was a situation where that spouse had passed the other spouse is kind of a deer in headlights and of course here's the advisor that they had so of course this is the person I'm going to trust. Uh, and that advisor took that million dollar portfolio and went and locked it up in investments that were illiquid, that were, um, uh, I think they had about an 8% commission to him. Yeah. Uh, and ironically, we're also about six months after the fact, completely underwater uh, in the private placement type setting that they were because they were real estate related. Uh, and the financial crisis was starting. And I had told her the only option she really had was to go file a complaint with broke, both the broker dealer and or the state. Uh, and her concern was, well, I don't want to do that because Tim goes to my church. Mm. 
the malpractice that's out there. And quite frankly, I, the hard part, and I don't, they're trying to legislate ethics in this industry, and it's just you're never going to do it because you have them or you don't. The hard part is is that what I would, what I'm most thankful for in the in getting into a partnership and a team with a senior advisor that allowed me to learn some things and then take off from that platform is I never had to sell anything to pay my light bill. And the conflict that some of these people are having of monetizing themselves at the expense of their client is real. I mean, their livelihood in some cases are tied to it or these advisors and it's conflicting, right? You're trying to retire in the next four or five years, 10 years, you're trying to get as much money as you can to retire. But at the same time, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a conflict against this client that after you retire, I'm going to find out if I become their advisor, if your advice was right 20 years from now, when they may or may not run out of money because you didn't give them the advice that they should have gotten, you did not uh, put them in the product that was most appropriate for them. Uh, you appeased what they wanted in the moment at the expense of what they needed in the future. Uh, and it's that malpractice that gets me out of bed in the morning and, and, and wants me to give a second opinion to everybody I know because I've seen so much of it. And we all have to fill out all these legal documents to try and document the ethics of not doing that. But you can fill out forms any way you want the, you know, right out there in this industry. And ironically, the, I think the biggest mistake in the last two decades is way too many advisors are allowing their clients' wealth to be invested way too conservatively. And if that doesn't change in the next few years, the rates of return on the fixed income portfolio at being almost nothing, or if you are trying to get a rate of return in the fixed income environment, you are going to regret that in ways that you only can find out if you talk to people that experience the history of a rising interest rate environment, but you don't want to have that conversation because you don't have a process to explain why things need to change. Mm -hmm. And we can teach you that. We can help you adopt that, that process. We can help you help the client realize why this makes some sense. And then realize that at the end of the day, the biggest mistake I think an advisor makes is they go into the relationship with an all or nothing attitude. In other words, I want to invest all of your money in all of this product or in all of this solution. And our process begins with what needs to remain in cash? If we can accomplish your life and make your life better and not invest a dollar and not make a dollar off of you, that's what we'll do. And it's reversed. Yeah. Well, that's a great window into your philosophy. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. When we started, I, I said to myself, I don't need to read Tyson's bio because it's just going to come out in the conversation, <laughs> uh, which uh, that was validated. But for everybody listening in, where do you go from here? Uh, first of all, Tyson would be an essential follow on LinkedIn. And I encourage you to go to his website, Form Wealth, and consume some of his messaging to understand how he's wired, how he conducts himself. Uh, because the peer sharing that Tyson will offer you, even if the relationship does not go any further than that, will be invaluable. Now, that said, if you are looking at the next five to 10 years and you want to simplify your life through collaboration, uh, there is a powerful force multiplier that can come out of this. If you're thinking about being acquired or drafting in behind somebody who's cracked the code or outsourcing the commoditized to somebody who has scale and is process driven to liberate yourself, to have fun and to drive your enterprise value and drive your relationships further 
it's absolutely essential you have a conversation with Tyson. So with that, Tyson, uh, you far exceeded my expectations, and I set the bar pretty high, but that's pretty common in our conversations. I get way more out of the conversation, I think, than you do from me. So thank you. And uh, I'm looking forward. I think we're going to do a webinar as well where we can uh, go into some deeply, uh, go more deeply into some of the aspects of your process. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But uh, you're a busy guy. Your time's valuable. So thanks for carving some out for me. Thanks for letting me share. Absolutely. Okay, this is Duncan McPherson with Pareto Systems. Thanks for tuning in to Always On. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit ProudMouth.com to learn more.